that was another thing that contributed to this. And this sort of celebration of really distorted wealth, that's something that's also happened in the last 25 years. I think we've always known sort of this distinction between have and have not, but it's really on display in a very, very sort of unique way. And everybody almost feels entitled to participate in it. So it's really caused this friction that I think is also contributing to this larger scale sense of entitlement and dysregulation and exteriorization and getting all your value from the things that are outside of you. Here's the bottom line. Economics tell us everything, right? Look at who makes the most money in a culture and that'll speak volumes. Given how little we pay teachers, social workers, therapists, and frankly, amongst medical professionals, the three groups that get paid the least are psychiatrists, family medicine, and pediatricians. So what does that tell us? It tells us we don't value professions that are based on the vulnerable, that are based on empathy, that are based on compassion. It's almost like the higher the empathy index of a job, the lower it pays. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. I'm Dr. Ann Kelly. And as you know, our goal at Therapist Uncensored is to deliver the sciences of relationships to you and to help you apply updated theory to your everyday lives. And if you're a mental health professional, to your practice. Now, our formats mix. Sometimes Sue and I share with you directly through our conversations, and sometimes we bring to you incredible guest experts. So we also support a thriving online community that seeks to deepen their study and learn together. And if you're interested, you can find out more and join at www.patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. However, we also have a ton of free resources through our catalog of podcasts. Don't forget to check out our show notes because we really try to make them chock full of information. And you can also join us on our public Facebook page. So all of this content is designed to just increase public access to this incredible science, especially to those who might not otherwise really have access to it. So, okay, let's jump into today's episode. If you enjoyed our podcast series, Holding Your Own with Challenging Personalities, today's episode is going to be an excellent follow-up or a companion piece. Today, we bring to you a powerhouse psychologist and an expert in the underlying dynamics of narcissism, Dr. Romani Dervasala. Now, she goes by Dr. Romani, and she and my co-host, Sue Marriott, together are really going to deepen the discussion of unconscious narcissism and the underlying fear of abandonment and how narcissism relates to attachment. Really interesting conversation. Now, Dr. Romani is a best-selling author of Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. She also has written Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. She's a wealth of knowledge to share on this topic of difficult personalities. She is an internationally acclaimed speaker who has been featured on the Today Show, Med Circle, and TEDx. She was also featured, actually, in Austin's own South by Southwest Conference. I say Austin's own, for most of you might know that Sue and I are from Austin, Texas. Most recently, though, she's had the opportunity to join the very popular Reb Table Talks, where she helps the public really understand difficult personality issues. In fact, one recent episode we found particularly powerful. She did an excellent job working directly with celebrity Will Smith on a real-life conflict. So through multiple mediums, 
Dr. Romani helps show the world, which was really nice, an accurate and positive representation of therapy. Now, while she has a pretty active public persona, she's taken a very deep dive in her clinically validated study of personality disorders. She's completed several grants with the National Institute of Health and has several peer-reviewed papers. She's also a practicing clinical psychologist. So, you know, let's just say she does not mince words when it comes to her perspective on narcissism. All right, let's jump into the episode with Sue Marriott and Dr. Romani. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Romani. We are so pleased and excited that you agreed to come and talk with us today. Would you mind just describing just a little bit of your bio in your own mm-hmm. words? Yeah. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Connecticut and my master's and doctoral degree at UCLA. And I've been a professor at California State University, Los Angeles for coming on 22 years. And I'm a psychologist in practice in Los Angeles, California. I'm based in Los Angeles, but I work with clients throughout California. And I've written three books, two of them on narcissism. One is called Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. And the other is Don't You Know Who I Am? Uh, how to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. I've written numerous peer-reviewed scientific journal articles. I've been funded by the National Institutes of Health for my research on personality disorders. I have a YouTube channel where I talk about narcissism. I have the opportunity to talk to a variety of media, including, for example, Red Table Talk, various news networks, uh, mental health media companies like MedCircle about it. And I do monthly seminars on this. And I also am involved with the American Psychological Association in their governance, working with their Leadership Institute for Women in Psychology, their Minority Fellowship Program, and in other parts of the APA that are meant to sort of address sort of systemic inequities. So, you know, it's like a, a whole diversity of things that are all sort of trying to get to the same place, which is to try to get everyone not only on a more even playing field, but to sort of feel more free to be fully themselves and addressing narcissism is a heck of a way to do it. Mm -hmm. So would you mind talking a little bit about narcissism in relationship to attachment specifically? Mm -hmm. Many people believe narcissistic patterns and narcissistic personalities are actually attachment disorders and a reflection of disrupted attachments. The two attachment styles that are most often associated with narcissism are avoidant and anxious attachment styles. You know, the anxious attachment to me in the cases of most cases of narcissism really seem to capture it the most. We often forget how much abandonment is a key and critical theme in understanding narcissistic personality. As soon as we hear abandonment in the mental health world, we immediately go to borderline personality, but we forget that there's a tremendous amount of shared variance between the borderline and the narcissistic styles. And so in in that overlap, we see again, this anxious attachment style of a lot of chaos at the time of departure, a lot of tension building up to the time of departure, very, very messy rapprochement, like very chaotic when there's a coming back together. I would say that in maybe more severe, maybe more malignant, and maybe even more post-traumatically induced narcissistic personality styles, we might see more of an avoidant attachment style where there's really much more of the putting up of the wall, almost a petulant rejection of the other kind of positioning. So those two attachment styles very, very much characterize narcissistic personality styles, very likely a disruption in early life, not necessarily just due to chaos and frank abuse, which it can also be obviously, but also the very distracted, uninterested, disengaged kind of caregiver. And so 
I think that our narcissism is very much on a spectrum, and that spectrum is also characterized by the origin of it too. I think that there are presentations of narcissism that are very post-traumatic. There are presentations of narcissism that are much more linked to sort of this kind of unavailable, maybe cold, potentially dismissive kind of early environment. And then there's the narcissism that really comes from overindulgence. And so there, what we may see is still somewhat of an anxious attachment style because there's such a conditionality put on the child that the child sort of golden child status or sort of crown prince or princess status really comes from their catering to the parent. So in essence, they're becoming a source of supply for the parent. And that what happens is that the interject for the child, the classical example would be the child says to the parent, I'm sad. And then the parent responds with, well, now I'm sad that you're sad. So what's happening is that the child is now having to contain that parental interject, not being able to sort of understand that they have differentiated emotions, which is also associated with more of an anxious attachment style. So that's really where we would see narcissism sitting. That's actually really interesting because I definitely think of it just off the cuff as a more dismissing strategy. But I really like the nuance that you're saying about this. It rings really true. And something else that you're saying about the parent's voice and how the child internalizes that. And I think if we grow them up now that there's an adult dyad, and if you're with someone with high narcissistic traits, their view of you can become your own self-talk as far as your own doubt and things like that. Correct. And remember, what narcissism, one of the core dynamics of the narcissistic personality is that they regulate off the other. So they need other people to regulate. People often become places of regulation, as do drugs and alcohol, spending, shopping, gambling. It's all externalized regulation. And people serve that function for them. It actually makes sense because in, for so, in so many cases, you really did have the sort of self-involved, egocentric parent that would often regulate off the child, right? I'm sad now that you're sad. And so because of that, poor differentiation is something that the narcissistic personality carries into adulthood, retaining that poor differentiation and thus those rather confused boundaries that you'll often see, and then the regulating off the other. I would say with the dismissive attachment style, to me, the dismissive attachment style really is observed more in the schizoid, maybe even the schizotypal personality styles, where there's an actual outright rejection of human interaction. Narcissistic people need people too much to reject them. And so you wouldn't see that sort of, you know, I'm not interested piece of it. They need people. In fact, I think it was Delroy Paulus who called narcissists disagreeable extroverts. I would take that one further and I'd say the covert narcissists are actually disagreeable introverts. But no matter what, they need people. They do need people. And in fact, with the disagreeable introvert, the covert narcissist, it's more of a social anxiety. So they feel so victimized and they have such a deficit in self-esteem, even relative to the people with grandiose narcissism, that that self-esteem regulation is based on other people, but things don't go well for the covert narcissist. They feel so victimized and sort of so defeated that that self-esteem decrement means that they don't put themselves out there to have the same levels of success. And their victimization means that they actually don't succeed because because they often put people off, whereas the grandiose narcissist is much better at working the room, very charming, very charismatic. So then I was also thinking about these blurred boundaries. And so the Mm -hmm. child has had to learn to mirror the parent in order to keep the connection and the availability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then again, grow them up. And then part of how this happens, I think, is that in order to stay close to someone that has high narcissistic traits, 
there is an invitation to drop your sense of self and mirror. It, basically, it's a repeat, but you're the narcissistic extension to them mm-hmm. as a way of preserving the relationship. Correct. Yeah. And the other thing that I see is that we project relationality and give them a lot more credit than is deserved because yes. of we're projecting our own relationality into them. Very much projecting our own relationality. And one of the really key and interesting elements of the narcissistic personality is their sort of emulated mirroring that they're able to do early in the game. And many people read that, perhaps misread that as deep empathy, but it's really not. It's more mimicry. And mimicking someone is not empathizing with them. We don't think of the parrot that can speak like a person as empathizing with people. We realize it's mimicking people or the monkey in the zoo that keeps turning its head this way and that. We sometimes even want to anthropomorphize the monkey or the parrot and say, oh, look how much they care, but it is mimicry. And so that mimicry is actually in some ways how many people think that this person absolutely gets me because the fact is we want to be gotten. So they play into the core wounds of many people who just simply want to be understood, which is very also a very human need. It's not even a wounded need. It's a human need. And so because of that, there is this emulation. And then what you have there is what is the core of all narcissistic relationships, which is the cognitive dissonance. These relationships are not terrible all the time. In fact, I'd even say sometimes they're terrible only 50% of the time. 50% terrible is still a lot of terrible, but the offset is the good. It's engaging. The person's intelligent. They might be very successful. They might be very smart. They might be very attractive. And now the dissonance comes up because the abusive moments, the rejecting moments, the invalidating or manipulative moments, they really feel awful. But then they're offset by, however, we laugh together, we have great sex together, we have so much fun together. And that's the dissonance, which most people will then attempt to justify, because we are homeostatic creatures, right? We want to maintain the relationship. And so they'll try to stay in it. And also, even though people who are narcissistic have a relatively high level of abandonment, neurosis or anxiety, abandonment fears are actually kind of even scattered into the normal dimension, going back to that avoidant attachment style, it's not unusual for narcissistic people when they feel as though someone is not giving them exactly what they want. They will then say, well, maybe this isn't working out. Now activating the abandonment fear in the other person in the dyad who's now fighting, like, no, 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 no. I think you're misunderstanding me. And they're constantly in this approach avoidant dance, which is very much a relic of the attachment style. And certainly many narcissistic people will get into relationships with anxiously attached people, maybe not at a pathological level, but the anxiously attached person and their ongoing concerns about abandonment and their fears of, you know, their difficulty with goodbyes and hellos really can create this kind of cycle that just plays out over and over again, sometimes for decades. Because when you're in the light, it feels so, so, so Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. And then certainly if you're vulnerable and you get your esteem from their exaggerated Mm -hmm. esteem, and as long as we stay connected, then I'm okay. So I do definitely like thinking of it dyadically a little bit Mm -hmm. there, Mm -hmm. but at some point then it's just becomes abusive or harmful. And that I've heard you talk about kind of the combination of hope and doubt. Is that what it was? Um, That that holds it together. Hope and fear. That's right. Fear, guilt, and lack of knowledge. I say there's really four bricks to this. The hope is the hope that it's going to change. And a lot of the hope coalesces around a dynamic that's classical in narcissistic relationships called future faking. The narcissistic individual will often dangle a carrot 
when I retire this, when I move this, someday we're going to get married. I'm going to go into therapy and I'm going to deal with my anger. So this constant promise of the something that's going to, oh, sure, once they get out of graduate school, it's going to be better. Once our kid is in kindergarten, it's going to be better. And the goalposts are always moving, right? And then the ultimate promise is I'm going to go into therapy and deal with my whatever, anger, rage, whatever. And so that hope that it could get better is what really keeps people in. But there's also fear. There's a point at which people start giving up on hope, but then they get afraid. They're afraid of being alone. They're afraid that maybe this is as good as it gets. They're afraid they're not going to meet someone else. They're afraid of the rage that would happen if they tried to disrupt the relationship. There's guilt. The interesting thing about the narcissistic personality is as much as we portray it as this big, larger-than-life, abusive, rageful, kind of frightening kind of style – There's actually kind of a sort of a pathetic underbelly to it. This sense of somebody who is honestly an overgrown three-year-old who's still tantruming. And especially when you're dealing with a covert narcissistic pattern, which presents it so much more vulnerable, many people feel like, wow, this person can't tie their shoes without me. They may not know they can't tie their shoes without me, but this person can't tie their shoes without me. And it really pulls for a guilt, and that guilt can really get compounded in people who have a trauma-bonded history where they almost associated with this sort of this sense of they have to be a caregiver and you know, excessive caregiving is love and all of that. And then the fourth piece really is the lack of knowledge. Because I think the hope, the fear, the guilt are all caught up in not quite understanding what these styles are, that they're very rigid, that they're not amenable to change, that they're deeply antagonistic. But I think the big piece is that they're really not going to change. And when people learn that, they're able to make a very informed decision. It doesn't lead everyone to leave these relationships, but what it does do is it makes people circumspect in the sense of, ah, okay, well, I'm going to gut it out till the kids are 18 because I don't want to share custody or I am, you know, I'm going to find a new job if it's a workplace situation or I'm going to have very tight boundaries with my mother if it's a parental situation. So I think people are able to make more informed decisions than, well, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time will be different. I mean, how many times is Lucy going to pull the ball from Charlie Brown is really what it starts to feel like. And it's interesting because your example was they wait till they're 18 and so that they don't have to share custody, mm-hmm. which does sound like quite a sophisticated reason mm-hmm. versus waiting to 18 so that the kids don't go through it being about the kids and again, projecting in the kids that they need this other parent and that this other parent is good for them. So I liked your phrasing mm-hmm. that someone that can really see what's happening might mm-hmm. still do the same strategy, but it's for mm-hmm. a very different reason. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And in that way, their eyes are wide open. They're engaging in a very different way. I teach people like, listen, you can't engage this. And people say, well, this doesn't even feel like a life. And I said, I never told you it was going to feel like a life. I said, you had your reasons for wanting to stay in this. It's not my place to invalidate or disrespect those reasons. And I think what ends up happening is it's like one of those children's game where you start pulling away the blocks and you're left only with the minimal part to keep that structure together. And when you take that away, I'm like, you can stay, but you can't engage. You're not going to talk about anything more than the weather. You're never going to defend yourself because you're not listening. You're never going to explain yourself because you're not listening and don't personalize what they're saying. And then when it's left down to that, it's very skeletal. And they're saying, well, there's not a lot of there there. So you realize then that the hope they had by taking away all of that engagement, you've also dismantled that in a very sort of inside out kind of a way. And they're saying, there's nothing here. And I said, I I never said there would be something here. (laughs) So now it's on you to decide what to do. And in the meantime, they're working with you and 
working on the stuff that's keeping them on the other level of their own wounds and their own mm-hmm. sort of empty spots. So that that's also mm-hmm. part of how they can, as mm-hmm. they're unraveling it, they're also filling up and feeling yes. more of a three-dimensional self. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And before we move to kind of a little bit of the bigger picture, you've talked before about kind of the 90-10 rule. Mm-hmm. That might be helpful if you find yourself locked. I'm thinking of a situation with a mother-in-law, for example, or something that's not an option to leave the situation. Sure. What do you mean by the 90-10? Anyone listening to this who has difficult people in their lives, and many of us have more than one, and these can be in familial spaces, they can be in the intimate relational space, they can be in the workspace. You know how much more energy you put into those relationships, okay? You spend time thinking about them before you see them. You spend time ruminating about after you leave them. You're walking on eggshells. You're very tense. You're worried about the blow up. So we put 90% of our psychological bandwidth into the most difficult people in our world. Leaving only 10% for the people who are actually good for us. Why? Because the people who are good for us, we can roll right up and pick up the conversation. If anything, we just feel good afterwards, but we're not worrying. We're not ruminating. They're going to hold on to us. Yeah. We have good object constancy with the healthy people. And they don't need us to be validating them. We don't have to walk on eggshells. There's no such thing as saying the wrong thing per se, or you can very quickly fix that rupture. I tell people, switch the math. Stop putting so much energy into the difficult people. It's never going to be pleasant. I tell people, prepare a little bit like, okay, I'm about to deal with someone very unpleasant. And then you just sort of hold your space. You use your breathing. You remind yourself this isn't personal. This is this difficult person. You assess it each time. How long is this sustainable? But even with you gave the example of a difficult mother-in-law, okay, you might actually like the partner and not like the mother-in-law. It really does come down to this technique that is talked about a lot in the narcissism circles, which is called gray rock. And gray rock is just what it sounds like. You turn literally into a gray rock. You become very uninteresting. You become very uninteractive. So when you're dealing with a difficult mother-in-law and she's blah, 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 blah. Okay, sure. Wow. Sounds good. Didn't know that. Like you, you almost could make an app that does it and put it around your neck. And then I tell people, if you know it's going to be more than a one or two hour conversation, have some topics up your sleeve. Like, can you believe the bridge got closed? Or why were they painting their mailbox red? Or can't believe they cut those trees down? Or sounds like snow's coming. And so these topics are completely neutral. It doesn't work for everyone. It's very interesting. There is a subset of very antagonistic narcissists out there who like the fight. They like the power and the dominance of people quivering in their presence, of people getting upset in their presence. It's as though they really drink up this kind of fearful narcissistic supply. Those folks, when you start trying the gray rock with them, they'll even start getting at, what's this all psychobabble? What is it? And they'll really, really go at people. And I know that's coming and people who are listening to this saying, I want to try gray rock. And then the person got even more angry at me. They will, and it'll peek out. And then the person will get bored with you because you really become gray rock and uninteresting, but you have to be able to handle that crescendo before it comes down. You stop being a supply because you're not interesting. You really, you're no longer taking the fight. You're no longer crying. You're no longer quivering. You're no longer saying things that aggravate them. You're just not engaging there. And you've now taken away their air supply, which if you think of somebody who initially loses their air supply, they're scraping, give me some, give me some. And they get upset and then they give up. And that's what you're trying to do. Again, you have to be able to tolerate the crescendo. 
And in the meantime, you're holding resource for yourself, mm-hmm. taking care mm-hmm. of yourself and not, like you said, the 90% giving it away. Mm-hmm. You know, something surprising happened. We had done a series on being in a relationship with difficult personalities, and we did a few on narcissism. And one of the responses that we got very strongly was, what if you're the one that is identifying with these narcissistic traits, which was so delightful because mm-hmm. that's not normally how we think about it, but probably mm-hmm. we had more people interested from that perspective than the other. So just for anyone listening right now from that perspective, is there mm-hmm. something that you would say, you know, when you're, if your ears are perked up and it's like, I'm so embarrassed. I do these things. I don't listen. I'm not interested. Listen, self-awareness is everything. And while I say these patterns are very resistant to change, I do think some people can really, really make a concerted effort. And the first thing is, is that willingness to take responsibility and say, yikes, I do this. And I'm aware of this. And I didn't realize how many bridges I was burning or now things make a little bit more sense to me. Then starts the really, really difficult uphill journey of really having to change how they do things. That empathy has to become valuable. That no, you don't get to go to the head of the line. You have to wait in line with the rest of us. The rules do apply to you the same as they do to everyone else. And so what it is in helping people work through narcissism is this intense empathic mindfulness that you constantly have to be self-reflective. You constantly have to be aware of what is my impact on someone else? Like what used to have been somebody who says, oh, I can be late. I'm the most important person at the meeting saying, oh, if I'm late, I'm disrespecting people. Oh, I got to be there on time. The biggest struggle I run into when I'm working with narcissistic clients is the ongoing contempt they have for people's feelings. Remember what I said, they regulate off of other people. So now they're having to self-regulate. It's a bit like when you try to teach a child to sleep on their own. For the first week or two, they're going to scream and scream and scream. And one night they get the routine down and they regulate and they might be a little sad and they might suck their thumb or read their book or puppet, you know, what do you call those little uh, shadow, shadow puppets shadow against, puppets. yeah, shadow puppets against the nightlight, and they slowly self-regulate and learn to put themselves to sleep. Well, with somebody narcissistic, that's a huge transition for them to go to that place of self-regulation. It's almost utter panic to think that they can't call and text fifty-five people when they're having a moment and that everyone's going to drop what they're doing for them. And then on top of that, that now the narcissistic person has to put their phone down and be fully present with somebody who's sharing of themselves and not belittle them or demean them or criticize them. And many narcissistic people say, well, that's how I talk. I'm like, then you're going to have to change it because you are hurting people, you know? And so you are teaching someone to speak a new language. And we know it's hard to learn new languages when you're an adult. Especially if you're not acknowledging the issue or Correct. doing it so superficially. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the big picture, there is a parallel process of this related to the way I think of it is it's not necessarily a gender war Mm -hmm. or even a political right left, but that it's split between people who really want to have a mutuality and support from one another and kind of the group as a whole, you know, an interpersonal stance Mm -hmm. where that we're both important versus this power over stance. So what are your thoughts about, like, does that track with some of what you're describing related to narcissism? Well, when you look at the DSM-5 conceptualization of narcissism, the DSM has gone away from a straight up dichotomous yes-no diagnosis, five out of nine kind of thing, and have now moved into a place where they talk about this alternative model for personality disorders. And when we think about each of the personality disorders, they pretty much understand it in the realm of the self and in the interpersonal realm, and the self is divided into sort of identity and goal setting, and then the interpersonal is divided into empathy and intimacy. And when we look at how the DSM-5 takes on that intimacy, they say straight up, 
people who are narcissistic say their relationships lack mutuality and are really constricted by the narcissist sort of egocentricity and their self-serving utilization of the relationship. That constriction and mutuality is part of now the diagnostic criteria. So because if somebody's regulating, I have a bottle of water here. I'm not asking the bottle of water how it's doing. Why? Because a bottle of water exists to give me water. But this is a bottle. It's an inanimate object. It's not a person. And yet the narcissistic person is going to interact with a person pretty similarly to the way I would interact with this bottle of water. So it is that sort of reanimating what are human beings and creating this interest in mutuality. That's really one of the core conflicts in narcissistic personalities. And it is such a, again, huge paradigm shift because one of the big conflicts in narcissistic relationships is they really do view people instrumentally. You do this for me, you do this for me, you do this for me. And that's really how they, everyone's sort of a bottle of water or a coffee maker or a car. They all serve purposes. And there's this idea that narcissism has grown tremendously over time, like in large cohorts. Do you have a sense of that and any thoughts about why that is? That data has actually been, you know, sort of mixed. A big part of the problem is that the scale that's used in the survey data is the scale called the narcissistic personality inventory. The narcissistic personality inventory has been called into criticism on both reliability and validity and whether it's really an accurate capturing of this construct, it tends to pick up more of the grandiose elements, more of the entitled and almost the leadership parts of it, like this kind of hyper assertiveness that translates into people who are naturally drawn into sort of being the boss. There's a little bit of valuation of sort of being a manipulator. And it almost seems like a person who gets a high NPI score is probably someone who's a really good salesperson or something like that. So what it doesn't seem to capture some of the clinical patterns. And that's what we really don't know. Because the issue then becomes nobody's is doing the huge survey research that gets at sort of clinically disordered narcissistic presentations. I haven't seen that data in any consistent way. Some people are saying that these numbers have been steady. Others have said that they've been going up. And that inconsistency leads me to think a little bit about measurement. One thing we've also not seen is really good culturally diverse samples. So we're seeing these are often done in white college student samples, which just doesn't generalize to anything. And here's where it gets interesting. So now we're talking about clinical narcissism. But when we get to the core issues of admiration and validation seeking, superficiality, concern with external presentation, egocentricity, poor regulation, entitlement, those patterns definitely seem like they're on the rise. I just haven't seen them captured in longitudinal research as such. And let's face it, I think that there were two big, big trends, maybe more than two, but two big ones that happened in the media, which were social media and honestly, reality television, which really, really incentivized attention-seeking in this really, really sort of unique way that the ordinary life got sort of pelted up to being something extraordinary. And what it is, the narcissist paradox is, it's for them, it's awful to be ordinary, right? So make a TV show about me. And then social media became a way for people literally to mainline validation. It used to be you actually had to leave the house or dress up or call your friends. Now you could just do it from the comfort of your home and create this complete artificial depiction of a life, which is this aspirational life that is designed to get validation for people. And then when you add to that some of the changes in the economy, which really meant everything went to just a few people, 
and all the rest of us are just sort of fighting over the scraps. That model of elitism, of venerating billionaires, viewing people as better merely on that basis, not on the basis of empathy or compassion, but just how many bucks you had in your wallet, that was another thing that contributed to this. And this sort of celebration of really distorted wealth, that's something that's also happened in the last 25 years. I think we've always known sort of this distinction between have and have not, but it's really on display in a very, very sort of unique way. And everybody almost feels entitled to participate in it. So it's really caused this friction that I think is also contributing to this larger scale sense of entitlement and dysregulation and exteriorization and getting all your value from the things that are outside of you. Here's the bottom line. Economics tell us everything, right? Look at who makes the most money in a culture and that'll speak volumes. Given how little we pay teachers, social workers, therapists, and frankly, amongst medical professionals, the three groups that get paid the least are psychiatrists, family medicine, and pediatricians. So what does that tell us? It tells us we don't value professions that are based on the vulnerable, that are based on empathy, that are based on compassion. It's almost like the higher the empathy index of a job, the lower it pays. Yeah, like I like your discernment about that. Insecurity being up, what is this pain? And we talked a little bit earlier about from a big picture standpoint, how mental health professionals, particularly in the media, there's the suggestion of if something bad is happening, it's more individualized, like take mm-hmm, care of mm-hmm. yourself versus really looking at, at it from a systematic mm-hmm. standpoint. And, you know, with attention being a commodity and mm-hmm. everyone after our attention, like paying so much money to get even a snippet of our attention that I could see this really amplifying a cultivation of the false self. That's right. The false self has taken on a lot of value. And we also are in a culture where it's easier to pathologize the individuals in a culture because then the system doesn't have to be fixed. And this is something we've seen in the world of poverty for years. Well, the reason they don't have any money is because they don't work hard, not that the playing fields aren't equal, the points of access aren't equal, the way lending is done is not equal, entry into all kinds of things isn't equal. No, let's just blame people for being lazy. And the same thing happens with everything. Like, let's just work on the individual and you're not breathing enough. You're not doing enough yoga. You're not being and doing this or that enough. I'm like, no, I think the system might be broken. And that right there is the struggle of narcissistic abuse. People will go into a therapist's office after having been in one of these really difficult, antagonistic, emotionally abusive relationships where they're being invalidated and gaslighted and manipulated and diminished and devalued and all of that. And they're anxious and they're confused and they're full of self-doubt and they might even have apathy and they feel helpless and hopeless and powerless. Most therapists are going to think they're depressed or anxious. Mm -hmm. So they're going to treat them for depression or anxiety. But the fact of the matter is, we probably would get more purchase in their treatment and make more of an impact if we taught them about the toxic pattern they're stuck in. But so many therapists are reluctant to weigh in on a pattern they're not directly witnessing. I happen to be a therapist who believes what her client tells me. I don't know why somebody would come in to pay all that money to tell me a false story about somebody so I can give them feedback on that. You know, that's like programming the computer wrong. It seems like a bad way to go. And then we can work with that. And many times I've got my clients pull out emails. They pay me voicemails. They show me text messages. There's no mistake what's happening in this relationship. You're just helping them believe themselves and trust themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to the system and, and looking at the system instead mm-hmm. of self-blame. Well, what about education and our educational systems about narcissism in general? 
I'd say actually our educational systems foster narcissism in many ways. We pit kids against each other. Who's the best? Who gets the most stars? Who gets the prize? Who's the valedictorian? Who's number one? It's very hierarchical or it tends to pathologize. Oh, you don't know. You're not bright. And kids are told you can't versus oh, your skill is actually something quite different. It's easier to educate people in one way rather than see the heterogeneity and what they could do. That kid who's able to sort of take apart an engine with his eyes closed. I'm like, listen, he's probably gonna make more money than a lot of the other kids. Cultivate that in him and don't marginalize him. Or the kid who's doing art beautifully, cultivate that love of design and not like, oh, you're not gonna take an AP class. So I already think that there's this marginalization that takes place that can already create that stratification that's associated with narcissism. Listen, when a person is insecure, that's where narcissism's you know, sort of stomping ground is, right? But if you could foster that security from a very young age, just because a kid's not reading fast or spelling the words right, find a way to work with them and not in a way like, look at that kid spelled all 100 words right. You only spelled 20 right, leaving that child already feeling devalued, which likely may even be mirrored in their home when they're getting a bad report from the school. That holistic way of thinking is really important. Going forward, though, I think when we think about how therapists are taught, the majority of therapists out there do not get a one semester course, even in personality disorders. Personality disorders become a two week add in to a major psychopathology class. And it's the dirty secret in mental health. This is what keeps therapists up at night. These are the clients who keep texting and calling and are having a hard time and are relapsing and are feeling suicidal. These are the clients who are often the most high demand who are the ones that are the most confusing and the majority of therapists haven't been trained in it and the supervisors don't know and the, and nobody knows. And so unless you were in a rarefied space where you were taught this because you got lucky with a supervisor or what the, who the faculty were, you have an army of clinicians coming out who do not understand these patterns. And yet these are the core of why I think in many reasons our mental health system is crumbling. It's not set up for this. And from that perspective, then they would just perpetuate looking at the individual, mm-hmm. being blind to the system, fostering, you know, oh, it's your insecurity. Correct. They don't see it. And building on your point, graduate programs like in, who are teaching counselors and therapists don't teach people to look at systems. Let's say you have a person who's in an intimate individual relationship and they're being manipulated and gaslighted and all that. Now, let's say that it's a queer relationship. These are people of, of color or some other marginalized status. They're also getting gaslighted by the world on the daily, you know, by having their statuses marginalized or doubted or having to deal with the world in a very yeah, different you're way. You're too and sensitive. So, yeah, you're too sensitive, right? So that sort of builds on it. And then there's even more self-blame. And to understand that many people out there, given how difficult the world has become, are having already in one toxic relationship, which is with the world at large, and then may have many individual toxic relationships in their lives, which means they're often going to get very triggered by events in our world that are very invalidating and difficult and dehumanizing because it's almost a replay of what's happening in their relationships. What I want is people to say, this is real, this is happening, and this isn't your fault. If somebody has a difficult narcissistic personality style, that's on them. You've been given a Rubik's cube where they put all the stickers in the wrong place. You're never going to solve this. You know, a previous guest, Steve Porges, 
he's the person who created the whole polyvagal theory and all the mm -hmm. co-regulation and the reception and all of those things. He has boiled down the thing that causes the biggest threat response in a human is comparison. So it just tracks really well with like how much we internalize and how reactive we are and dysregulated uh -huh. we are with that comparison. So whether it be social media or whether it be schools, the educational uh -huh. systems, that's the thing that's going to get us dysregulated. And then when we're dysregulated, then we get pathologized mm -hmm. and then we're going and going and going versus mm -hmm. like you're saying, stepping back and really looking at the system of why is that comparison happening anyway? And our vulnerable communities for sure are on the short end mm -hmm. of that stick. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. I think that one of the challenges with the issue of narcissism is it's become the hot button issue of our time. It really is. It's ironic. I started doing this work God, it's almost been 10 years ago. Nobody cared about it. I was like, okay. You know, it's like the one academic who just studies the one butterfly that nobody cares about and is very content in their lab studying one butterfly. I was actually really content sitting in my lab and pouring over thousands of pages about narcissism and writing about it and researching it. And the world changed quite a bit in the 2010s and lots of world changes and leadership changes and all that. It really brought this word into people's purview and everyone wanted to get in on the narcissism game. It's actually sadly quite profitable. There's a danger there because I think that people are walking around, I'm a narcissist coach and I'll make it all better in a week. The hell you will. I've worked with some of these clients for five to 10 years. Healing takes time. It's like a flower is going to bloom on its time. The moon's going to turn full on its time and you are not going to rush that. And so these big promises are made. There's also people out there who blame people in narcissistic relationships. So there's a lot of people who don't understand attachment theory, who don't understand the neuroscience of these sorts of developmental issues, who don't understand the intersectional issues, who think it can be so quick, who can throw out a few terms. It's not that simple. That this is an unspooling of family legacy issues. This is an understanding of co-occurring psychopathologies. This is an understanding of development, of trauma, and of sort of relational dynamics. And to understand not everybody leaves, and that's okay. The pathologization of somebody who stays in a narcissistic relationship to me is unacceptable. I understand why people stay. And I understand that sometimes people continue to justify. And I say to my clients, you can stay until the very end. I will not let you justify this relationship. That's not happening. Okay. So you are not going to justify he was mean to me because he's stressed out. Uh, 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 uh. He is mean. Own it, say it, live it. But I'm not letting you have the justification. That we're taking out. Yeah. You're protecting their reality testing. Yes. Protecting yeah. that, mm -hmm. you know, I see what I see. I'm going to mm -hmm. let myself know what I know and not confuse mm -hmm. myself as a way. Of I'm going to confuse them. I yeah. confuse them. I say, listen, if you're going to stay, then you're going to stay honestly. And that's right. a very interesting process for people because then it's almost like sometimes they'll spend a year, year and a half saying, yikes. And so therapy almost becomes a form of dialysis every week where they're letting out the toxins. They go back in, they come <laughs> in and we let out the toxins. But over time, you know, when they say, da, 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 they're so stressed, da, 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 they're so tired, da, 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 they're working so hard. I'm like, mm-mm. You know, and like a stern parent, I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to do it this way. And like, this is uncomfortable. You really are putting people into a place of tremendous discomfort. Mm -hmm. I understand why they're staying. And some people will say, I don't not want to be under the same roof as my children seven days a week. I don't. I'm a parent. I understand that. I say, that's fine. I completely get that. Now mm -hmm. we're going to have to break through that dissonance. You don't need to justify. You're very clear on what it is you're doing. Be very, very clear. And that's what I work with clients on is clarity. This again, 
There's no magical seven-day, 30-day, 20-day coaching program that's going to do this. This is something that this is a deep dive. And I think I get concerned when people sort of offer these really quick cures for mm-hmm. something or workshops that is a, or yeah, what so, have you. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's great for people to go and learn about it. But even when I do a seminar or workshop, I say, listen, you're filling up a toolbox and a bookshelf. And some of you, this seminar might put you 80% down the road. And for some of you, we're just opening your eyes a little. And both of you, then it's great. And I think that understanding that information is power. But there's a lot of people making a lot of false promises in this space. And that concerns me because what ends up happening is for many people who have survived narcissistic relationships, life for them is like watching a foal get up on their sort of unstable legs. They're, they're getting, they're going to be strong and beautiful and gallop away. But in the beginning, they're very vulnerable. So when somebody says you're going to heal in a week and they don't heal in a week, they go back to self-blame. Well, see, I was a loser. My partner's right. I am an idiot. I can't even do this. And then they slide back instead of giving a person space to say this takes as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. So I think these are the reasons where this is actually really, really challenging. It's some of the most challenging clinical work I've ever done. And what I'm hearing I, is a lot of humility. That. You have a lot of humility about this and sort of realistic expectations and really work to slow people down and have this be more of a bottom-up healing than just reading the book or what have you. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Things have changed a lot since 2010. And now are you the spokesperson? Like I saw uh, the red table and you know what I mean? Very high level reach now, which is so wonderful to get this message out high level. Yeah. I mean, that was a process, you know, it was actually a very gradual process. I think the day when the motivation on wanting to do this became so clear to me, and I'll be honest with you, it came in the form of unlikely messengers. It was to people, I see students I was working with. They said, you know, your books are really smart, doc, but you should be making videos. I said, I don't watch videos. They said, you may not watch videos, but everyone else watches videos. And they said, will you humor us and make 20 videos? Just do it. And let's see how it does. And we did it and we experimented and initially we did it in the iPhone and we had terrible audio and people would criticize us. And over time, you know, cameras got bought and green screens got bought. I mean, it was like we had, we started with zero dollars, zero. I mean, so even buying the camera, I'm like, oh my God, I can't afford this $500 (laughs) and put it on a credit card. And so Mm -hmm. it has been a process, but for me, I've had some very clear visions and missions, which is number one, Many people experiencing narcissistic abuse are from parts of the world where they're very restricted from having independent money. In the United States, it's the same. People in these situations are often in very controlling relationships. They don't have access to funds. Some people just, they don't know what this is and they kind of type in the search terms and then maybe one of my videos comes up. I wanted the content to be accessible and free. And so YouTube gave us that opportunity to do that. Now we're building out other programs that come with a fee and that might be more sort of banged out. And we're having scholarship programs for those and everything too. But I wanted one place where I knew anyone in the world, as long as they had an internet connection, they were going to be able to hear what we had to say. And that was sort of the work that came really from the heart. And so we continue to work very hard on that. But it was interesting how it all sort of spooled out. I work with a wonderful company called MedCircle, and they also you know, featured the videos. And that was a really good partnership too. And it is still a good partnership. So I've had these opportunities to work with good people who are really able to get a lot of content out. And you know what? Anyone is trying to get content out. You know this as well as anyone else do. It's slow and steady wins the race. So it's just getting up, daily practices, doing the work, doing the research, putting it together. And I do that day after day after day. This matters to me because 
it's the first time I've really seen that a relatively simple message is setting a lot of people free. We're right with you on that. Our heart is about getting the relational sciences out to the world. And we just are so pleased with the reach that we have. It's incredible and it's free and it's totally accessible. And we get similar messages of like, you know, like it, be, it begins a journey. It's not mm-hmm. the answer, mm-hmm. but it begins to pop and you have your light bulbs and suddenly things change. Mm-hmm. So totally with you on that. Thank you. And thank you for doing it. It is just so incredible. I really can just even imagine the lives that you've touched. We, we used some of your work, you know what I mean? So you're seeding people all over that, mm-hmm. you know, the ripple effects are fantastic. Wonderful. Um, thank you. One other thing, if people wanted to reach out to mm-hmm. you, can you just give us your social media? Yeah, I'd love it if people went to my website, which is drromany.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I.com. If you put in my name and narcissism, it's all going to come up. And from there, you can link out to everything, to my YouTube channel, to, you know, if you want to look at my books, all of that, various things, other things I have written, podcasts I've been on. If uh, people want to go to my social media, all of my social media is at drromany, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, on LinkedIn. And all the ways to try to reach out to me and all that are all there. And for people that are even more interested than that, there's an opportunity to sign up with you for different seminars. Yeah. So every month we have a new seminar. I think April is going to be on gaslighting. We just did one on dynamics of narcissistic relationships. We'll be doing more healing programs through the summer. And then we replay them. You know, and then we're also developing courses for people in narcissistic relationships. And the courses, just like the seminars, include workbooks and all kinds of stuff to just sort of round out the learning and continue the learning even after the seminar is done. Because one of the things we love so much about our audience is they're very smart and eager and lifelong Mm -hmm. learners. And I know that people after hearing you will want to dive in further. So we really like to hook people up with the source. So Wonderful. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Take care now. Bye-bye. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 